What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Making the Turn, the premier green industry podcast that highlights professionals across many areas, including golf course management, sports turf, sales, business, education, landscaping, and more. Making the Turn is hosted by me, BJ Parker. I've spent nearly 25 years in the green industry, mostly as a golf course superintendent, and now I want to bring the knowledge and insight from myself and the many people I've met and continue to meet along the way. Making the Turn will provide valuable content for those looking to learn from others, gain useful tips and tricks, and be better in their daily lives. You can find Making the Turn on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe. It helps keep the podcast growing and getting better. Thanks for listening, and welcome to another episode of the Making the Turn podcast. All right, Dr. Horvath, we're live. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How about you, BJ? I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for uh, jumping on to another episode of Making the Turn. You're, I'm starting to get a few repeat guests, so I uh, appreciate you jumping on. And uh, How's things going for you? Uh, pretty good. Uh, we, we're uh, kind of the stay-at-home order is what the governor's called it. Yep. It's not a not a shelter-in-place order, so that's good. Um, we can still go out a little bit and get some exercise and fresh air, and, and uh, as long as we stay distanced from people, that's good. And, yeah. Um, you know, we're we we we've handled it fairly well in in Knoxville. We're uh, we've got still less than a hundred cases and they've very slowly risen over time. So that's good. Yeah. Um, and so we're just kind of hanging in. Well, what you got going on right now? Anything, uh, I mean, uh, obviously I imagine work is slow, but do you have anything going yeah, on? Yeah. So we've, um, so the university's asked us to work from home as much as possible. Um, right. The faculty that are currently teaching uh, were required to move online and to do that. Um, I have a fair amount of experience teaching and creating materials online anyway. So uh, I've kind of been in a support role for my colleagues that are you know trying to figure something out and, right. and uh, trying to make it so that it's a little bit easier for them to do that. Um, fortunately for us, uh, in the spring, uh, our students, I think I mentioned it on the, the previous podcast, we get done at the end of February, beginning of March, and then our students go on their internships. So for us, we had completed class at the end of February. And so this move to online has not affected us, which is good unless, you know, God forbid we end up doing it in the fall. Right. Um, but, uh, but for us, we, we've, been, we've been fortunate in that regard. But then our students have gone out on their internships, and so that's created a little bit of a wrinkle. So we've been talking to students and figuring out, like, have they been displaced? Uh, are they off work? All that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, we have one student that I know of uh, that's on his internship, but he's having the shelter in place at the apartment. So that's creating a little bit of a challenge. We had another student that was supposed to go to an internship. And they couldn't go because they shut down. Right. So we're looking at other opportunities for that student. So, you know, it's created a few little wrinkles that we're ironing out. But for the most part, we're we're doing fine. And then on the research front, um, we've got we've moved 
all of our kind of day-to-day needs to our homes uh-huh. uh, so that we have that, that, those materials here at our, at our houses. And then myself and my research assistant, we can go out into the field to make any fungicide applications or whatever at our research plots right. and stay away from having to go in buildings with people. We can just go out and keep distanced from each other, make our applications and then come back to the house and not really have to worry about it too much. Right. Are you in, uh, the other professors and doctors um, interacting pretty much on a daily basis and trying to figure that all out, or is how's that working? Yeah, so it's it's working it, it's working really well. We use uh, Zoom, which sure. is of course you know taking taking the world by storm right now. No doubt. Um, and uh, we we've used that uh, for for most of our meetings. We had a faculty meeting uh, that honestly was probably the best attended faculty meeting we've had in a long time. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, we have, so we, we do have, we do meet on probably a daily basis with one or more people at any given time. Um, and then we've also managed to kind of work out some social activities. We have a coffee break in the department a couple times a week where we all get on zoom and we have a cup of coffee and kind of chat about stuff and kind of keeps our connection there. And, um, the turf faculty on Fridays have instituted a little bit of a happy hour at the end of the day. So that's worked out kind of nice last week. We did it. We're going to do it again this week. So it keeps everybody kind of, you know, in contact and, yep. and communicating. And that's been really helpful and, and good. I'm curious what your thoughts on at we, as we come out of this, how everybody's got to kind of adjust to how they do things that how much this interaction will be more, uh, used in throughout your specifically, you know, education and doing the things you do, but what's your thoughts on how this is going to change a lot of things? Do you have any? I, I, yeah, I, I, I've been asked that question a couple of times. I think the, a couple of things that that I, I foresee coming out of this one is, you know, it's, it, it, it was one of the first memes I saw related to the whole virus thing was like uh, the, the meme said, uh, Hey, do you remember when you asked your boss if you could work from home and your boss told you that that was absolutely not possible? Right. Turns out that it is. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's like one of those kinds of things where I think, um, people realize really quickly how much more flexible you can be. And, and I was, I was actually heartened by seeing that, you know, it's not just not to diminish it at all, but the, the unemployment rate it went up to like 4%, which, in years, decades past, we would consider relatively good uh-huh. unemployment. And, um, and while we certainly are, you know, I feel bad for the folks that are out of work, like that's a number that when you initially think about this, and it's certainly a lot of the, you know, folks in restaurants and, right. and small retail and things like that, that are hurting. And that's, that's not to be diminished, but it's pretty clear that big business and and major operations have figured out a way to work through uh, some of the challenges and are not, you know, massively laying off huge numbers of the workforce because they can continue to do their work with a laptop, yep. a Wi-Fi connection and a, and a webcam. Yeah. And they can keep doing, you know, what they're doing. They're just doing it in a slightly different way. And so I think there's going to be things that come out of this where you're going to see a lot of the, you know, uh, face-to-face, the, the feeling that you need to be face-to-face to sell a product or whatever right. um, is maybe going to diminish a bit and there'll be more of these kinds of things. I think there'll be education that's more like this. Um, I don't see 
universities, you know, going all online and never going back into the classroom. I think that's that's a little bit of a pipe dream. But I do see more online offerings because people start to see that, well, it's it does take some work to get up to speed, but you can do a pretty decent job of of educating someone via an online mechanism like this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, as we talked before uh, we started recording, you know, I, 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 I love to do the face-to-face interactions, and I was, and on the podcast, and that's why I got so involved and enjoyed speaking with the people that have come on. But I've, I've figured out that this is probably going to be the new way of having to do some of these, and if I, and I'm. I haven't dove into Zoom as much, but where I can have multiple people on and it's going to, yeah, take, for and, sure. you know, I can capture all that audio. It's just a matter of figuring it all out. And, and, uh, that may for me broaden in my brand and what we're doing for TTA and you guys and everybody that I'm trying to kind of, you know, get the information out there. Cause I'm trying to evaluate how to build more content. And so I think, uh, I'm looking at it as a positive for what I was, you know, I started a year ago. So, I mean, that's yeah, kinda, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, I appreciate you sharing all that. And again, best of luck to all that. This is confusing times and we're trying, I'm still able to work outside and I'm actually going to do some irrigation work this afternoon. So I'll get out and, and get after. Yeah. It is nice to get outside for sure. It's uh, my wife and I took a drive for about an hour and 15 hour and 20 minutes, just kind of drove up into the mountains and took a left on this road and a ride on that road and just kind of made a loop and, uh, and it was nice to get outside and kind of put the windows down. We had the dogs in the back of the car and yep. and just kind of cruised a little bit. And and uh, it was good for the car to get up to speed too. <laughs> I know? hear you. Like, been <laughs> sitting in the driveway for too many days. It's I, I don't. I I was saying the other day. I hope this is what it, this isn't what retirement feels like because I don't know what I'll do myself. <laughs> I said the exact same thing to my wife the other day. I said, "So this must be what retirement feels like," and I'm not sure that I like it. No, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm working as long as I can. That's for sure. Yeah, or I'm going to exactly. learn to play golf or something. But, well, speaking of golf and sport, I mean, I'm I'm a little bummed out that we don't get to watch sports these days. And and oh, um, you know, I feel like uh, I had a good conversation yesterday to a uh, golf pro here in town, and I was I was wondering if golf is missing an opportunity here to be kind of um, the the bridge of all this with with people in sports and I, I'm curious what your thoughts are if they can maybe think about something outside the box to get going because right now golf is sort of an acceptable thing to go do with with parameters and different things guidelines but get out and enjoy some interactivity stay safe and go hit the ball around so you think uh, golf maybe I know they're probably thinking about it I've seen some Tiger oh, yeah. Field stuff and all that but what do you think about that I, I think they're I don't. I don't. I think that in a, in the places where it's being allowed, I think uh, it is it is a huge uh, win for golf to be able to do that. Yep. The the challenge is as a as a disease person uh, and understanding a little bit about a disease epidemiology. I know enough enough to be dangerous when it comes to human diseases. Yep. But um, you know when you when you look at what's going on and 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 some of the challenges with that, the, the thing that concerns me and, and I joke around like with some friends, like it's why we can't have nice things is that you can institute these rules, but then you go out and see them and people don't put them into practice. Right. Um, I noticed, uh, I got out last Saturday, played by myself, uh, put my, put my bag on a push cart. I need to get in shape anyway. So I thought I'm going to go walk. 
I'm going to keep to myself, play by myself. Uh, and so I went out and, and played and I was amazed the parking lot was packed and that's right. great. I mean, that the facilities are being used and whatnot, but, but concerned me was how many, uh, people I saw riding in carts together rather than in, you know, if you're going to ride in a cart, ride in, you know, one person to a cart to keep that distance. Yeah. I mean, if you're related to the person and you live with the person, well, then that's fine. Like if you're a husband and wife and you rode in the same car to the place, then riding in the same cart makes sense. Um, that's one of the things I've noticed. I have a good friend of mine that's a superintendent out in Seattle where, you know, that's been one of the big hotspot areas. And uh, so very early on, we started talking and kind of discussing ideas and ways to address some of that stuff. And like one of the things that he came up with was he split his uh, work crew into two teams that work alternate shifts with the idea that that way, if, if one group or the other gets sick and can't come into work, he still has a decent sized crew that can come into work. Um, And then uh, so there's a little bit of redundancy there. And then, uh, the other thing that he's done is he's made it, uh, you know, they moved all the meetings outside, which was a pretty easy you know, thing. A lot of people did that yeah. spaced everybody out so that, you know, you can talk, but you're, you're spaced out enough that you're not next to each other. And then, uh, the big one for me was that he, he realized pretty quickly, like he has a couple of different groups of folks that ride together to work and live together. Mm -hmm. And so what he decided was that, okay, then you're going to work together and you're going to stay together all day. So that way I have a group of two or three or four people, depending on how many it is that can go do small projects because there's enough people that can work closely to each other to do a project, but they ride together and they live together so that if one gets sick, he's made it clear. Like if one of you guys gets sick, you're all staying home. Like I don't want any of you here. Um, and, and the, you know, I thought that was a pretty wise move as well. Um, you know, I, I think the, the key thing for golf is that we can't just say that we're going to follow the rules, Yeah. right? Like there's a lot of clubs where the pro or the GM or whatever feels like they have to, you know, kowtow to the members preferences and the members may not think that this is a serious deal and they don't know anybody that's gotten sick and all of that kind of stuff. Right. And so what's the big deal? And so why can't me and my buddy ride in a cart together? Cause we've both been staying home and we've mm-hmm. only been coming out here and we're fine until it's not fine. Right. right? And then, and then you have a cluster of people that get sick because you were not being smart. Yeah. And so I think that's the that's the one caution that I have with regard to keeping golf open is that, you know, we have to do better. Because I know that, the, like, the things that I saw this past weekend are not just unique to the place that I played. They're probably happening elsewhere where they say they're following the rules, but in practice they're not. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and that's, you know, that's what ends up happening with all of these stay at home orders is you have businesses and restaurants and things that say they're going to follow the rules and then they don't. So then the government feels like, well, now we have to step in and say, you cannot. Right. And we're going to, we're going to legislate it to where there's penalties so that you, you cannot do what you're doing. And that's, that's unfortunate, but I think that's kind of human nature too. It's just kind of one of those things is we're always trying to figure out how to get around it and make it work. And like I, when I played, I did it primarily cause I hadn't been out of the house in a week and a half right. and decided mm-hmm. I wanted to go out and walk 
and what better way to spoil a walk than to chase a little white ball. And, <laughs> no doubt. and I didn't even putt out. The greens have been terrified. I didn't care. The, I, I putted out once to just see how the cup modification with the, the pool noodle and the flag stick worked. Yep. And that was pretty effective. I thought that was, that worked fine. But then the rest of the way around, I didn't even putt out. I just rolled the ball up close to the hole, picked up and moved on to the next hole. And, and I, you know, and I played by myself. Yeah. I, I, I had a conversation just briefly over uh, Twitter with uh, Chad Anderson and I asked, and he asked the actually forward the question because I was curious, but none of these scores count for uh USGA handicapping, <laughs> all the modifications yeah. and all of that. It just, it, there, it's just completely shut the game down. If everybody's right. following the rules. You know, That's and, right, and 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 I I saw a couple of posts early on, which I thought were just kind of, you know, inane and and goofy uh, from from some folks that like are in the industry as either superintendents or whatever, where like guys were you know, well they should play the ball as it lies in the bunker, even if you've removed the rake, and it's like guys, you're not playing by the rules. You've modified the cups. You've modified. You've changed you cannot play by the rules. If you, if you do those things that you're not playing by the rules and if you're not playing by the rules and while those are important modifications, if you're not playing by the rules, then those like, like to Chad's point, you can't report those scores. And, and so at at the end of the day, at that point, it's a matter of what you and your playing partners agree on as the game for the day. You play it as it lies, you roll it to a free spot in the bunker, you take it out of the bunker and toss it on the grass because it doesn't matter right. when it comes to handicaps. And at the end of the day, like that's part of the thing that bothers me and a little bit of the tone deafness with some of this stuff is it's like you got people dying. You got people that are mandated in countries that cannot go outside under penalty of law and they'll get taken to jail if they come outside. And and we're out here enjoying a round of golf and <laughs> there's people worried about whether that, that can be reported for handicaps. It's like, you got to be kidding me. Right. Like, you know, just get outside, enjoy some fresh air, have a nice walk, stay away from people and, and put some tunes on and enjoy it. Yeah. And just enjoy the day and enjoy the purity of playing golf for golf's sake. I, I 100% agree. I, I was, I merely was just bringing that up because I, I saw the same thing where people are, it's just crazy to me. It, we're in a different world perspective. People need to have perspective about what's going on here. And, um, you know, as much as we hate it, and as much as everybody thinks they're bulletproof, I mean, come on. We're just go out and have fun and enjoy it. Be glad that the government's not shutting down the opportunity to play golf and to interact. I mean, you know, it's uh, you're right. It's absolutely mind blowing to me that people lose that in in the midst of all this craziness. That let's just put everything on pause and and not worry about what your handicap's going to be like. I mean, yeah. And, yeah, and, it's going to stay the same. Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't if you don't have any reportable scores, your handicap's going to stay yeah. the same. It's not like you're going to get you know better or worse. You're going to get better or worse if you continue to play at a certain level over the long period of time, anyway. So, like, relax. Yeah. It'll be okay. Well, I think it would be kind of cool to for you to kind of give a little bit of what you mentioned earlier, a little bit of of what your thoughts are about this whole epidemic and the virus and sort of you've been able to take all this information that's kind of floating around. And I know being a pathologist that you have a lot of, you know, you, you kind of absorb that different than we do. So give, give somebody your thoughts on it. If you got any, or if you don't want to, that's fine too. You got any? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm always very cautious 
you know, early on, I, I kind of felt like uh, it was pretty clear that some of the real negative doomsaying kinds of predictions of 3.5% mortality rate and things were a bit uh, over the top. Um, that's kind of borne out to be pretty true. Um, the, uh, the one example that we had early on, you know, when, when back when I took epidemiology in graduate school, we talked about, you know, an ideal way to be able to measure an epidemic is if you knew the outcome of every single individual in the population. Right. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and the, the, the challenge with that is that, you know, there's seven and a half billion people. Um, some people experience, you know, heavy duty symptoms where you can identify that they're sick. Some people get moderately sick and don't really show a whole lot of symptoms. So there's no real way to monitor all seven and a half billion people on the planet to know what happened. Um, but the one place early on that we had that was on that diamond princess cruise ship where we had an, you know, an enclosed group of people that were, you know, all on board. We know how many people died. We know what the symptoms were. We know who got infected, who didn't get infected, all that kind of stuff. Sure. And, and, and that particular example suggested that the mortality rate was much closer to somewhere between six tenths and 1% than it was two to 3%. Right. And as more and more cases have been building up, we see that that mortality rate's coming much closer to that 1%. That's still a lot. Right. I mean, that's the thing is I don't think people have a real, you know, really full understanding of what, you know, 1% of 300 million people is. Right. You know, there's 325 million people in the United States. 1% of that's still a lot of people. Right. You know, and, and that's, that's the thing is that I, you know, I, 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 I used the example the other day, uh, and to bring it back to kind of a turf example where I'm much more comfortable talking, I, people lose sight of the magnitude of numbers once they get up over about 1 million. Cause that's about where most people I think can think of like money. Yeah. Right. Like I, I'm a millionaire. I've got a million dollars and right. they, but like even, a, you know, and I remember way back as a kid, I saw a show, this was back before Payne Stewart had passed away because he was on the show and it was about wealth. It was on the learning channel. And it was about wealth. And Payne Stewart actually said what most people don't understand about wealth is that if they had a net – or no, he didn't say that. He, he, he talked about all of the things that he had to pay for that most normal people didn't have to pay for because of what he does. Like, right. So he has to have a gardener. He has to have a housekeeper. He has to have all these people that come in and take care of his house and his family because he's not there because he's out playing golf. And he's doing that all the time, yeah. all, you know, all year. And, um, and then this, this other guy said, you know, most people don't understand if you had a net worth of a hundred million dollars, it would be physically difficult for you to spend all the money. Like you, it would be hard to do it right? uh, because you're earning so much money on the money. And, um, and and no doubt there are people that have successfully accomplished that. We've seen those examples. For sure. Uh, But uh, the athletes. Exactly. Right. You know, musicians, yeah. uh, MC Hammer. Yeah. Uh, so there's they're they're out there. Yeah. But it's it's one of those things. That, but people lose sight of how much money that is, right? Right. Like, but at a million, I think it's it's it's. But even several hundred thousand gets kind of wishy washy. Right. And and it's the same kind of thing in turf. I notice people that just they have no concept of how much water is in a rainfall event. 
You know, they'll, they'll go out, you know, you see these in neighborhoods, they'll put the 55 gallon drum at the bottom of their downspout. Yeah. Right. Right. And they'll go, oh, I'm going to use this to water my my flower bed. And I've got four downspouts, so I'm going to put four 55-gallon drums out. Okay, so that's a couple hundred gallons. And then you figure out what the surface area of their roof is, and you figure like a quarter-inch rain, and that 55-gallon drum fills up in like 10 minutes. Right. <laughs> like 10 minutes of a small rainfall event. And they go – Wow, that's a lot of water. Yeah, it's a lot of water. Yeah. Like a, a, a pond that's an acre, you know, an acre in size and a foot deep has 325,000 plus gallons of water in it. Yep. You know, so you think about a swimming pool, a large Olympic swimming pool. There's millions and millions of gallons of water in that. Yeah. And people don't register that. So then they think, oh, when, when you say you use a million gallons of water, you're using a lot of water. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm not using very much water at all. Right. And, and, and you know, it's that same kind of thing with this stuff is that people see these numbers. And I, I think the worst thing about this epidemic, if I were going to make a statement about it, the worst thing about this epidemic is the, the counters and the – the uh, the the digital uh, live updating uh, screenshot of where it is in the world and how many people have died and how many people have it and how many tests have been done yeah. so that we can go go play gotcha with our leaders about what they said about how many tests were being done and all of that kind of that's the worst possible thing about this epidemic 100%. is the fact that it is the first epidemic that is social media live right. that it's live. Because all of this stuff happened 25 years ago, and we didn't have any clue. They would just tell you, "Hey, you've got to be really careful because right. we've got this this you know disease that's going around, and you got to be real careful." Yeah. And if you got sick, you got sick, and that was it. Right. And and you know you go back to 1918, and you look at what happened with the the Spanish flu and 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 the influenza out epidemic in 1918, and you know there are some real lessons that we can learn from the importance of social distancing and how that works right from that that era uh, but you know I asked a, a science teacher the other day an elementary science teacher on Twitter I said do you think I said you, you need to keep in mind that that you know we've only had DNA technology for about 25 years you know uh, uh, what's his name Kerry Mullis won the Nobel Prize for the polymerase chain reaction back in the late 80s, early 90s. Like that's 25, 30 years. Right. That's max. So we've only had like real DNA technology for the past like 15 to 20. Yep. And, and there is no doubt in my mind that a coronavirus, which are very common viruses in animals, have jumped into humans. In fact, the common cold is a coronavirus and there is no doubt in my mind that coronaviruses have jumped into humans, but 50 or 60 years ago, when that happened, transportation wasn't as massive. So we didn't have people traipsing all over the globe at a moment's notice. Right. We, we had, a, so the, so transmission occurred much slower. And then the other thing about that was it would be like, Hey, yeah, I, I remember Bob had like a cold and then, you know, he got pneumonia and died. Wow. That was that was bad, right? And 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 it just never registered to the regular person that well. The reason why Bob got pneumonia and died was because of this virus that infected his lungs and and 
took him out when he shouldn't have. Right. And and we didn't have the tech, the medical technology either. You know yep. the the you know, and that's so. Those are the thing. I mean, the big thing about this epidemic is it's not how many people die. It's going to be how many people get into that that group that need to be hospitalized and then how many of that group need to be moved up to an ICU level right. of care where you're on a ventilator and stuff. And to, to keep that number below what the capacity is in that region. Right. And as long as that happens, we will, we'll weather this storm and we'll get back at it right. and it'll be okay. That's what I think. I mean, the statistics can be scary and you have these conversations with people and to kind of piggyback off what you're saying, it's like the numbers are just, they just almost blow your mind that you see right. them constantly revolving and changing and they're so high and people are like, oh my God. But then if you, if you were to sit down with someone and say, let's break down the statistics because they're, they're numbers, but the facts are, is it's like, it's not as bad as say this. I mean, if I, if I told you that I was having this conversation, if I told you that like third, you know, twenty-five to thirty thousand people die every year from dogs. You'd be, you'd probably not want to be a dog owner if you think about the number. That's you know, but that's that, right. These are these are real numbers, and you know, and things happen all all the time. I that's think right. the, the 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 scary part is is now it's like it's gotten to a point where we're in the social media age. People are asking these crazy tough questions, and now the government's having to step in. We're having to do all these things that. We were we were just being told to do that before. It's just not so in your face, and that's yeah, that that's absolutely a great point. And I think the other thing too is that we are also in an era where you know every media outlet is trying to get clicks and to get so you know good news, uh, perspective, all that kind of stuff goes out the window because you're trying to get somebody to click. So the, right. the worse you can make it or the more compelling you can make it for somebody, you know, it's like the, the headline with the, the folks that took the, the, the pond cleaner and, and poisoned themselves, <laughs> right. you know, and, and the headlines were like, they took the drug that president Trump meant and you know, and, and whether you support the president or you don't, that's beside the point. It's, it's the idea that the headline said that they took the medicine and it's like, no, they took a, an aquarium cleaner right. that has that active ingredient. That's like, that's like if, if you said you used one fungicide, you know, that, you know, there are fungicides available to us as turf folks that are also used, you know, in other forms of human and pet care. Right. And, you know, avermectin is a good example. You know, avermectin is used for flea and tick, you know, control in animals and it's also used for nematode control and turf but you can't go get your your nematode control and bathe your dog in it <laughs> and, and 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 it and it's just to me that the fact that that headline read the way it read was just tone deaf from but it's clearly an example of the era that we're in welcome to when our it media. comes to yeah. you know telling people and and kind of drumming up and, and that's the thing is that i think it drums up the fear and yeah. then that creates because my daughter has asked me, you know, questions about it and like, do we need to be worried? Is the end of the world coming? And, and I, you know, I, perspective is a good thing. Like you mentioned, like about how, you know, dogs dying. Like I looked up the other day, how many people die a year in car crashes in the United States? Exactly. And it works out to about 1800. Well, it's not as 1800 a day right now, but it works out to 18 in a normal year, about 1800 a day. Yeah. That's a mind blowing. Yeah. And it's, it, but we drive down the road every day. You would, and, you're not thinking about going and not getting in your car now. 
<laughs> yeah, so to me, to me, the, the 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 key things about all of this are it's the fear of the unknown. Yep. That's a big one. And we don't know exactly what this virus holds if you get it. Right. We we don't have a very, very clear picture. Uh, and and so that's that's the one. And then the second one is is that we're in this era of hyper media, you know, kind of you know trolling for clicks. Yeah. And and that creates another huge issue. How how can you for the for my audience in this podcast? How can you relate this? What's going on to the the uh, uh, to turf grass and the diseases we see? Do you is it a very similar correlation? It to well in 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 our turf diseases most of our diseases are fungal in nature right um so that is a key distinction we don't have a whole lot of viral diseases mm-hmm. um, most of the viral diseases that we see in plants are are what are called vectored um which means that they are um moved from plant to plant to plant via insects usually yep. uh that you know, suck up the fluid from one plant that has the virus and then go pierce another plant. And then when they pierce that other plant, they inject a little bit of their uh, saliva. And in that saliva, they inject a little bit of their, the fluid that they got from the other plant and that transmits the virus. Yep. So they're, you know, th- those things are fundamentally different. Um, when it comes to turf grass diseases, the, the thing that, that I think uh, has the most accurate, kind of correlation or, or analogy would be things that spread very rapidly. So that would be the, the, you know, the pythium diseases, uh, things like anthracnose that produce lots of spores. Uh Um, those are the kinds of things that you, you know, if, if you see an epidemic happen in a, in a field and you watch how quickly it can take off, that's the, that's kind of the analogy that, you know, I would probably draw, but it's a, it's a pretty tough one to, to draw an analogy to it. But, but certainly the, the spread piece is, is, has some, some, uh, you know, crossover potential there. Well, cool. I think that's interesting. And, you know, and if we can somehow us turf managers and professionals can think about things from that perspective absolutely, and and how we're, how we're going about treating them and and what we're doing. and the other, uh, the other uh, one that I would say that just kind of popped into my mind as you said that is because, for me, my my favorite subject in graduate school, and then what I did my PhD on was was in the area of epidemiology. I I just found epidemiology fascinating, studying how disease develops over time, right? right. And and uh, I, I just found all of those concepts fascinating. And one of the big concepts that we use in epidemiology that is absolutely applicable from this virus stuff that we're facing to turf is what we're what we keep hearing on TV and from our our leaders and stuff about flattening the curve yep. or lowering the curve. Um, and the the idea behind that is that uh, when we track epidemics and we track the incidence of disease. Uh, we're, we're measuring how fast it's, so we see it increasing in a logarithmic fashion, which is that big, you know, up, you know, ticking up curve kind of like that. Right. And that for, for us, we see the same thing in turf diseases and turf diseases, depending on whether they're producing spores, 
how they how they move around and that kind of stuff transmit themselves. They can have different kind of curves. They they can go up epidemically. They can they can kind of stay flat and just kind of like linearly go up. Uh, they're different. But what we do is we spend a lot of time measuring the area under the disease progress curve. And you'll hear people like me at conferences talk about if we, well, if we look at the season long amount of disease and look at the area under the disease progress curve, this is what it tells us. And what we find with that is that, and this is the thing that they're talking about with the whole flatten the curve thing is that the overall number of people that get infected, if you flatten the curve may not be different from just letting it happen. Right. But what will happen is you'll keep the number of people that are infected at any given time fairly low, right? Uh-huh. So instead of going up like this and down, you have a curve that goes like across this way, but it's spread way, way out, right? Right, and, right. And so the idea behind that is that the areas under those two curves would be the same, but how they occur over time is not the same. Uh-huh. And and that's the key piece. And, and we see that absolutely. And that's one of the things that we do with a lot of our management practices is that we are, in fact, flattening the curve when it comes to a turf disease, uh, you know, a cultural practice like proper top dressing when it comes to anthracnose is a good example. If you're top dressing properly, you're making the environment less conducive for that disease to get started. Uh-huh. And by doing that, you're kind of flattening the curve of what could potentially happen. Right. If you, if you know, and, and Dr. Bruce Clark's done a, a lot of work on anthracnose and cultural practices. And one of the things that you see in Bruce's work is that the top dressing doesn't get rid of the disease. The disease still occurs, right? But right. the severity of the disease is lessened. Okay. And so you end up with, you might still have a certain amount of disease over over the season, but that amount of disease that occurs is reduced as a result. And so that's a lot of what we do in turf is we're trying, you know, with the stuff that I do is trying to understand what, what are the different practices that drop that area under disease progress curve down to a manageable number so that as an end user, you may not even see anything. Right. It might still be there. That disease might still occur, but it might only occur on, you know, on a putting green, there might be several million plants and it might only occur on 5,000 plants and you'll never see that. Right. Because you just, you just don't notice individual plants. Do you think that that will, this will help change the way, you know, our fungicide programs are, are in how we incorporate cultural practices and different things like that into how we are disease are managing our disease uh, programs and things like that? Do you have any? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the ideas of epidemiology have fundamentally changed how we do these things. Right. Um, and I think we've done over the last 30 years, we've gotten much more intentional about understanding the epidemiology pieces associated with the different diseases that we face so that we can do a better job of managing them without just thinking immediately about what comes out of a bottle. Right. Um, And so that has, yes, that's definitely changed. And I, I don't know that this particular, uh, you know, virus epidemic or pandemic for, for humans is going to change anything that we do in turf, but 
but I do think it'll make people more cognizant because you just hear, you just hear the terms more, right? Like you hear things like flatten the curve and stuff like that. So then as a person that communicates to a lay audience about what it is I do, I can use that as an example. Say, well, you guys have all heard flatten the curve, right? Well, this is what we're trying to do here in turf and people will get it maybe a little easier that way. Right. Well, I certainly have wanted you on. I think this was an important conversation. I'm glad we got to do that, and I, I think that uh, it would we would have failed to not cover some of those cool things with you and 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 whatnot. But I want to kind of transition a little bit, if that's cool with you. We you yeah. we had you up at the Tennessee Turfgrass uh, Conference, and and you 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 spoke on uh, different uh, topics and things, but you did one in particular where you. You, uh, you're interested in golf statistics and some of the things that uh, you had, and I don't know if anybody listened to that. And unfortunately, I didn't get to capture that audio. So I wanted to have you back on because we're both golf dudes, and I love golf. I mean, that's how I got in the, the whole industry myself. Absolutely. And so I'd love to dive into some of that with you and talk about it. Sure. I think people will be fascinated by some of the statistics that are out there and sort of what you're discovering uh, I know you're doing this a little bit uh, more than it, maybe it's a hobby, but I mean it's something that you've gotten involved in and interested in. So let's talk a little bit about that and kind of we can kind of start with what that whole talk was about, and then we can just me and you just figure out where to go from there. Yeah, sure. So so the 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 conference presentation was about using the data that's being generated by the game of golf to help uh, superintendents be able to communicate. Uh, better with their pros, GMs, and their their golfing membership or or public uh, clientele to use that data to explain why certain management practices are important and also why maybe those management practices uh, don't necessarily alter uh, the outcome of the game or, or 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 fundamentally change it or make it dramatically different. Right. And so um, I always kind of start with with the the um the idea or the the key concept of all of this goes back to the statistic that was developed uh by Mark Brody and Mark Brody is an economist at Columbia University he's an avid golfer he's on the USGA handicap panel uh and he uh, he developed this statistic uh using uh economics based uh calculations to explain how golf is played. And the idea behind it is a fundamentally simple concept. I, I've, I've given, I've talked to a couple of different small groups of younger people and even like sec, sixth and seventh graders. And I would guarantee like even down to like, you know, first and second graders understand this concept. Right. Um, it's that simple. Uh, the math, when you get into doing the math, it gets a little more complex, but the concept is simple. If you are 25 feet from the hole, and I'm going to test this with you, BJ, so this is a quiz. Okay. If you're 25 feet from the hole or you're 25 yards from the hole, which one of those two do you think it would take you fewer strokes to get the ball in the hole front? If I were 25 feet or 25 yards? Yes. I mean, the obvious answer would be I'm 25 feet. Yeah. Every time. Every time. The closer you are to the hole, the fewer strokes it takes on average. If you play it a thousand times, it's going to take you fewer strokes from 25 feet than from 25 yards, period. The end. Right. Even if you're excellent, right? Yeah. And so the concept behind this is that 
the closer you can get to the hole or the, the less distance you have remaining, the fewer strokes it's going to take you to get in the hole. So then that's what leads to, you know, the stuff that all the, all the woke folks out there that want to play with hickory sticks and with a reduced distance ball and all that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah. that they, the, you know, the bombing gougers. Well, what, it, what the data actually shows and has shown from the time they started collecting it is that as, as you reduce distance to the hole, it takes less strokes on average. And here's the scary part or the, the unfortunate part for those folks is that it doesn't matter what technology you play it with. That's how the game's going to work. Right. It may change the numbers on what those numbers are, but it's going to it, – it is going – that concept will remain uh-huh. is that when you cut distance down you know, to the hole, then you will take fewer strokes. Okay, so that's kind of the basic concept, right. and 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 so then what we have is the the PGA Tour has collected since two thousand seven uh, location data on every single shot that's played on their tour, save for a handful of tournaments that they don't control, like the U.S. Open, the British Open, the Masters, uh, and then a few other tournaments where they play on multiple courses. So they only collect that data on on the one course that they play on Sunday. Right. Uh, so like at the Pebble Beach uh, Pro-Am, you know, they have the rotation of courses. They're only collecting that shot data on Pebble Beach because that's what, what they play twice. Um, and so they've collected all this shot data. And what it, what it shows us is it gives us first the ability to create a baseline that from any distance away from the hole, we know what the average number of strokes to hole out in tournament competition as a professional golfer, what that average number is. And so while that's a professional golfer that we're measuring ourselves by, it gives us a guide as to what can be expected because basically what happens is you have the professional golfer up here and then the the high-level collegiate player, elite amateur, and then, you know, a top level scratch player, and then a, you know, a couple handicapper. And it just kind of, it progresses down kind of in a perfect stair-step fashion. So it doesn't matter if you're a 30 handicapper, you're going to perform at some level worse than a pro golfer. Right. But that, that relationship's going to hold pretty consistent all the way through. And so, uh, what's interesting to me about that is from a management perspective, we can start looking at it questions that we couldn't answer without involving emotion uh, in the conversation. Like, for example, I had a a colleague of mine or a a, a friend of mine who's a superintendent uh, send me, uh, he he asked me, he said, hey, I've got this par five on my golf course um, and there's three trees about 150 out that have gotten to the point where for a good player, if they're in the fairway, they can't go for the green, even though they're a distance that's close enough to go for the green without hitting some sort of really manufactured curving shot because of these three trees that are not in the fairway. They're over on the side of the fairway, but the way the hole bends around them, it impedes that possibility. And he said, and so there's some discussion about taking these three trees out and putting rough in that area and returning that area to rough. And he said, but then there's another group of folks at my club that think that that's going to make the golf course way too easy. And he said, you've been talking about this data stuff. Is there any way we could figure this out? 
And I said, yeah, there's actually a really easy way to figure this out. Right. And he's okay. Could you show me how to do it? So we sat down and so the, the hole was from like the middle of the back tee is like 520 yards. So you go in and you look up what the average strokes to hole out and it ends up being like 4.8 or something like that, 4.7, 4.8. Um, and so then the way that works is if you hit a certain distance drive, then we also know from that distance how many strokes it takes to hole out, right? So let's say you hit a 300-yard drive, okay? So right. you go from 520 and you now hit 300-yard drive. So you're now what? 220? Uh, yeah. Right? You're 220 out. Yep. So you're 220 out, and then the average strokes to hole out from there is like 3.2, 3.3. I, I'm not looking at the data, so sure. I don't know, but it's somewhere in that ballpark. Yep. So let's say it's 3.2. Okay, so you were 4.8 from 520, and now you're 3.2, and it took you one stroke to get there. Okay, so you should be, with one stroke, you should be 3.8, but you're only 3.2. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So so what you have saved by hitting that drive is you have saved or gained point – what is it? Point six – yeah, point right. 0.6 strokes yep. with that 300-yard drive. So with one stroke, you gain – it's actually like you you, you – with one stroke, you, stroke. you got 1.6 strokes. Right. Right? So you've yep. gained point 0.6 strokes. So then we do that again – and we say, okay, well, from from that distance, if we end up laying up to that 150 and we hit it in the trees, what's the average strokes to hole out from in the trees? And what's what's mind-boggling to most people, and this is one of the things that I talk about in that presentation, is how um, you know, and it, it kind of is also apropos to the conversation we had about the pandemic stuff, is that uh, we have this huge confirmation bias that's that's in everybody that watches golf. And the reason why is that when we consume golf, we are uh, beholden to the decisions that are made by the television production uh, as to what shots you see. And not surprisingly, when they cut to somebody that's 15 strokes off the lead who has a 50-foot putt, <laughs> you can pretty much guarantee it's going in the hole. Right. And so you get this idea that all of these guys are holing stuff from everywhere and that they're making everything and that they're so good that when they hit a 150-yard shot, they hit it within five feet of the hole every time. And the, the problem is that if you go out and you get out there early at a PGA Tour event and follow whoever it is that goes off at 7.30 in the morning. Some of those are going to be names you never heard of, and then every once in a while, a guy that's not playing well, it'll be a name that you have heard of. Right. You go watch them, and they don't hit it anywhere near where you think they should be hitting it. And the reason why is they're down at the bottom of the leaderboard, and they're struggling. Right. And that they're still one of the top you know, 200 people in the world at this game. Yeah. And 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 they're 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 not they're nowhere close to where you think they should be. And what you find is that when you look at all this data and you just let the data kind of speak for itself, you realize, you know, things like from, you know, there's there's kind of a guideline or a rule of thumb from 100 to 200 yards if you're in the trees, the average strokes to hold out if you're a professional golfer is 3.8. Okay? 
So from 100 to 200 in the trees, so my example was in the trees at 150, the average strokes to hole out from there is going to be 3.8 if you're a professional. Right. And on that par five, what that means is that for the regular person, it's going to be worse than that, right? Uh-huh. And what, what I kind of made the case to them was that even if, even if it was a professional, when you remove the trees and change it to rough, that number goes to like – from 150, it goes to like 2.8. So it ends up being about 0.6 strokes easier for a professional golfer. Yeah. And their average handicap at their facility was like a 16 and a half. So <laughs> that's, that's pretty normal. I said, how about you get rid of the trees and you make it more fun for the folks that lay up because they're not having – because the thing that I didn't mention is that there's also a creek that runs in front of the green. So for the good player back there that was previously blocked out and having to lay up, if they decide to go for it now, they're taking on that creek and creating the possibility of a penalty. Right. Right? Uh-huh. So that, that creates this risk-reward, and that's something that we like in golf. Yep. Then the, the other thing that happens is that if you do decide to lay up, if you're not that talented and you lay up to that 150, you don't have to worry about being – in the trees, the rough will create enough of a penalty that will diminish, you know, some average score there. If you're in the fairway, you have to deal with the creek still. But those folks that were previously in the trees, they can't go for the green even if they wanted to or they felt like they could hit the shot because of the creek. Right. So they're, they're going to run into troubles with the creek immediately. So they end up punching out. So what you end up with is like a win-win-win, right? Like you have the strategy of the hole is restored. The, the good player that decides to go for it brings in the creek and creates this risk-reward opportunity that can increase the variability of scores from high to low. And then you also have the folks that end up laying up. They end up having more fun and enjoying themselves more. Right. And why wouldn't we want that? No doubt. No doubt. And it was just – and it was and I said, and if folks are really sore about it and really are upset about taking the three trees out – propose to find a spot where three trees can be planted that are not in the way. Yeah. I mean, that's and plant three trees and restore some area of, of somewhere else on the golf course. Yeah. How much, how much is the distance? Um, you know, you hear this narrative about, and you mentioned it earlier in the early conversation about, you know, how to make the game harder. And we're, we're just specifically looking at the professionals at this point, but how right. many, how much is the distance we've seen over the years when tiger and, you know, won it by, you know, 15 shots and then they had to change the course, thought he'd win every year. I mean, how did that evolve the data in and out? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm of the belief, the course, the yardage, you can do other things to make the, you know, protect par if we hear that term a lot of times, but you right. know, what, what sort of things does the distance play into it where people are saying, well, I got to back this hole up? Because I know as the distance grows, like you say, the strokes uh, it, it takes to hole out probably increase as well. Yeah, so um, that that's one of those where when you hear a professional player say something like, and I can't, I can't remember who are the, the few that I've heard them say it, but there's been more than a few that have said, you cannot make a golf course long, too long for me. Yeah. Like it's, it's impossible. And the reason why is that when you look at what those numbers have to be to get the, the average strokes to hole out, to be significant enough 
yeah. to to completely change what they would have to do or to really modify what they would have to do. You start getting into like ten thousand yard golf courses, <laughs> which is uh, we're not talking about going to eight thousand. We're talking about going to ten thousand. Yeah, and nobody's going to do that. God, could you imagine just the cost to maintain something like oh, that? <laughs> exactly. Right. So nobody's going to do that. Right. The the club itself, and I and I there's probably, and this is one of the things that I think the USGA could probably do a better job of working with manufacturers rather than always being in this adversarial kind of stance is that there are probably things with regards to the club that could be a little further regulated to help decrease uh, some of the marginal distance gains that are still occurring. Yeah. Um, Some things with the ball that could be changed or more regulated to affect some of that kind of stuff. Um, But they need to be incremental and small kinds of modifications. But the overall concept of the club and the ball has been limited for several years now by rule. Yeah. So the club face can't respond with more than they have the, it's called the CT test or the, the, how the spring like effect of the, the club face works. Right. And that that's limited. Um, one of the big differences for you and I versus a professional tour player is that you and I, even if we go get custom fit, right. And we, we get a, a golf club fit to us by a custom fitter that really gets into it, like, you know, shaft and grip size, the whole nine yards, right? Uh-huh. If we get a club that's custom fit, we're still, uh, a, there's still a little bit of a roll of the dice as to what club head we get that comes off the, the line, off the assembly line. And it might be one that's up at the hot end and it might be one that's down on the cold end. Right. We don't, or it might be one right in the middle. And we don't know what we're going to get. Right. Yep. But a tour player gets to go into the tour van and if they need a head, they get to pick out a head that's already been set aside for them that is at the very upper end of the rule. Yeah. And 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 that's why the PGA Tour, I believe, has started testing the CT, uh, you know, every week that they go out, they have a CT test where they randomly select a group of players because – there's no way a player is going to choose to have a club that is not towards the upper end of the limit. Right. So you could change the limit, drop it down a little bit if you wanted to reel them in a bit. Yeah. They're still going to be at the upper end, and for us, it's not going to make a big difference. <laughs> but the thing is, the CT time isn't going to change by more than five or six, seven yards at most Right. without fundamentally changing how you have to design the club head. So it's not a major change, right? Yeah. So you can, you can monkey around with that a little bit. The ball is the same thing, but I contend that the real thing with distance that has changed is that little orange box that sits behind almost every player on the PGA Tour that that measures what is happening, or they have the one that sits to the side, the the GC quad or uh, flight scope, or you know any one of those devices, TrackMan yeah. flight scope, GC quad, you know any of these any of these uh, launch monitors that measure everything that's happening with that club and ball interaction when it makes contact. And what that does is it changes. uh, And a lot of players don't want to know the numbers, but their teachers can help the player translate those numbers into feel. Right. 
because and the players don't necessarily want to know the numbers because they still want to play by feel. But what the teacher can do knowing the numbers is they can give the feedback to the player like, hey, you want to do this a little bit more. You want to do that. Try to feel this, right? Right. And so you have players like Rory that you know has the ability when he hits his high bomb – he hits it at an eight degree up, you know, angle of attack. Well, it becomes a ballistic equation at that point. Yeah. You're just, you're simply measuring, okay, if the club head is traveling this fast and the ball spins it this much and, and I hit it at eight degrees up, which causes the launch angle to be 16 and a half degrees and it's flying at this speed, how far is it going to travel? And it's no different than if you're sitting there with a rifle and you've got your ballistic calculator and you, figure it in. The only thing they haven't had to figure out is how to take into account the rotation of the earth. Yeah. And you know, some of those guys, as far as they hit it, they might have to take that into account a little bit, but <laughs> it, it's just crazy right. when you look at like that kind of stuff, how, you know, how detailed this, this stuff is. And they get that feedback on every single shot. And you and I, we can't afford the, like that little orange box behind them is twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah, it's crazy. We, we don't have twenty five grand laying around to get something for our hobby. <laughs> I'm not going and, out to do that anyway. No, I don't. And, I would love to have somebody just look at the numbers and see. You know, I wouldn't. Sure. I'd pay for and that. And I've had good fortune to be on it a, a handful of times yeah. and to use. And it is amazing when, like, I've tried a few. Like, here, let me try to do this. What does that do to the number? Oh, wow. Yeah. And and realize like, okay, that's a little something that I can maybe work on a little bit. Right. And I've gone and taken, you know, taken uh, lessons from from people that use it and they're able to show me, okay, this is kind of the stuff you need to work on for the next year. And it's helped me a lot. Right. You know, improve my golf. But we can't do it the way they do it, which is use it every day. And yeah. and they get the feedback every day about what's going on. And that's, that's the reason why a player like Dustin Johnson, who was very talented, but he was kind of one-dimensional, and he hit the ball a long way, and that was it. Well, he used that little box to figure out how to hit his wedge distances a very specific distance. Right. And all of a sudden – now, there's other ways to do it. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I could have my son go out in a field with a baseball glove, and I could hit balls at him. <laughs> Sure. You know, yeah. and say, okay, I'm going to try to hit it over your head here and try to hit it five yards over his head. And then I'm going to try to hit it five yards short, yeah. you know, and then have him tell me what I would, you know, that's a form of feedback. Right. But when I skull one into his, in his into his dome, <laughs> you know, going to have some that's problems. That's going to be an issue. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to go to the hospital. I know. Practice is over. Yep. You know, so I, I there's ways to do it, but that that's the thing is that those guys have had the ability to do that for now, like almost, and, and the guys that are now playing on tour, the young guy, they've had this their whole careers. Right. Even as juniors, they've had it. Yeah. And so that's fundamentally changed the, the game. So I think, you know, back to your original question, the, the things that have changed in terms of the distance argument, to me, the big one is, is the launch monitor technology. Right. Um, you know, I know Billy Horschel got asked not too long ago, one of the last tournaments before they, they buttoned things up, they asked him if, if you had to go back to playing persimmon woods or give up your track, man, which would it be? He said, you're not getting my track, man. <laughs> yeah. So he, you know, and so his mindset is you can give me whatever and I'll figure out a way to hit it out of the center of the face. Right. 
and and I'll be fine. But you're not you're not getting rid of my ability to get the feedback on every single shot of what it's doing, so that I can learn how to hit whatever it is you put in my hands. Right. And I that's w- that's the big thing. I wonder how much that doesn't translate because I've watched these guys hit balls on the range. They're sitting there with their coaches and their track man, and they don't miss a shot. It's everything is, and then correct. But then they pressure. Go, then they go. Pressure is a big. Yeah, pressure is a big piece of this. Yeah, people don't understand how much that affects. I have a a, a friend of mine that plays. I, I call him a friend. He's not a friend. He's an acquaintance. I know him well enough to, for he and I to know each other by first name, but he plays on the PGA tour. Sure. And I've asked him and, and I've, I've been able to chat with him and talk to him and, and send him questions. And, and I was getting ready to play in the, in the, in the Tennessee mid-am qualifier. And it had been a while since I had played competitive golf. And I just sent him a message and said, Hey, I'm going to be doing this in the next several days. And one of the questions that I have is, you know, how do you make adjustments for distances when you're not jacked up to when you're jacked up on adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Cause I know it'll happen. Sure. And I've seen it happen. I remember as, as a college kid, as a, even in grad school, I played some competitive golf and I remember going out and charting out what I was going to do on every hole at this golf course. And then in tournament, uh, in the qualifier, I hit, uh, my first tee shot, 25 yards farther because I was super jacked up on adrenaline. And now I had this little half wedge into, into the green instead of a full shot, which is what I was trying to do with my strategy. Right. And because I didn't want to have a feel shot right away, I wanted to be like, okay, I can hit full shots for two or three holes. Right. And just, you know, if I make two or three pars in a row, that's fine. But I just wanna I just wanna be able to hit full shots so that I don't have to worry about my adrenaline. Well, you know, I hit this little flip wedge. Well, with the pressure and the hand shaking and the adrenaline going, I skull it over the green and then I chili dip the next one and then I get it on the green and two putt yep. and make my six and I go to the next hole and bomb another shot off the tee 25 yards farther. I got another flip wedge. This time I chunk it. So now I'm mad. So now I skinny it. It's 15 yards over the green. I hit it back on the green, two putts, another six. So I'm four over after two. Right. Yep. And so I asked him, I said, well, how do you make adjustments? He said, well, usually the way it's worked out for me over the last couple of years is whatever is a smooth like easy shot, like distance for that club, it's going to be somewhere between half and three quarters of a club shorter in competition. Right. And so I kind of factored that into my, uh, my kind of strategy on what clubs to hit off the tee and, and what to do with what I was trying to do around the golf course and ended up, I made a few loose shots towards the end. I got a little tired and a little mentally drained, um, but I ended up shooting the lowest score I've ever shot in tournament golf. And, and it was, I mean, I was amazed at, at how that just made it that much easier to right. account for. And it just, it changed how, you know, but the pressure yeah. plays a huge role in what those guys do from when you see them on the range or you go out and play with them for fun. Yeah. I got, I got the opportunity several years ago to play with, uh, a young man that had played at Tennessee who had gone to Augusta as an amateur 
and played in the masters and, and won the silver cup, which is the low, low amateur. Right. Um, and, uh, had then turned professional that summer and he was playing professionally. Um, and he, uh, you know, he was just getting his career started and we played that October. So, you know, seven, eight months removed from playing at Augusta is the low am. And we played at Tennessee national Mm-hmm. And I decided when I pulled into the parking lot, I was going to play from whatever tee box he played from. And of course he played from all the way back, right. 7,400 yards. Um, I don't ever play from 7,400 yards. <laughs> I play from 6,400. And if, if I want to go out and have some fun and shoot a good score, I'm going to try to play from, you know, 6,000. Right. And, um, and so we play from 7,400 yards. And I, I knew my, my game was good enough. I wasn't going to embarrass myself or anything right. and shoot 1,000. So we go out, and the first three holes, I make bogey, bogey, bogey. And he made bogey, double bogey, or sorry, bogey, par, double bogey, right? Uh-huh. So he's three over after three. I'm three over after three. And I'm thinking to myself, jokingly, this guy won the Silver Cup and is now playing professionally. Maybe I should think about this. <laughs> Well, of course, the rest of the way, he shoots three under par to finish even. Yep. Um, and did you break I 90? Continue, I, continue, I did. I shot 88. <laughs> I continue making bogeys. So I shoot 88, yeah. right? So he beats me by 16 strokes. Yeah. And at the end of the round, he's complimenting my game and telling me that I'm a good player and everything. I said, well, I appreciate it. And, and he said, no, seriously. He said, you played from a golf a length of golf course that's far, far longer than you normally play. I said, yeah, I usually play about a thousand yards shorter. And he said, well, think of that as two extra par fives and you made birdies on them. Because he asked me what I usually shoot. And I said, I usually shoot in, you know, the high 70s, low 80s, yep. right? You know, somewhere around 80 is, is okay for me. He's like, yeah. He's like, so think of it, you, you shot 88 from a golf course that's a thousand yards longer than you normally play. So that's like two birdies on two extra par fives. Right. And I was like, okay, that's fair enough. That's a good way to think about it. I'll <laughs> put that in the positive thinking cap. And uh, he said, did you learn anything else? I said, yeah, I learned two things. I said, the first thing is that when I hit a bomb off the tee and it goes like, a, you know, a distance where I get to puff my chest out and kind of be like, yeah, put it out there. I didn't do anything. (laughs) And he kind of chuckled like you just did. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, you were always 30 yards past me. I said, when I hit a drive that was much longer than I normally hit it, you know, out, out maybe 300, 305, you were at 335. Yeah. And when I hit it 275, which is my normal distance, 275, 280, you were 305. So I didn't do anything to make the ball go magically farther. It was maybe the fairway was drier, the 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 roll, yeah. you know, on that fairway worked out differently. The we were uphill, the wind was at our back, something was occurring, but it wasn't me. Right. Because if it was me, then that gap should have shrunk a little bit. But it was always 30, he was always 30 yards past me. And he kind of chuckled. And I said, I bet you see that a bit on in pro-ams. He goes, all the time. And, and then I said, the other thing, and I said, and I don't mean any disrespect by this. I said, but you beat me by 16 strokes in something that didn't matter to you at all. <laughs> and I said, I shudder to think what a Rory McIlroy would do to me. And he kind of chuckled and goes, yeah, it's hard out there. 
because he's the guy getting, you know, beat up by, by Rory, you know, when he goes out and plays. And, and he's like, yeah, it's really friggin' hard. And you, you know, you stop and think about it. Cause I said, I said, you beat me by 16, but that's just for one round. That's 32, that's 64 shots over a four round golf tournament. Yeah. I mean, you stop and think about that. Like the spread from top to bottom on the pro tour is, you know, in most tournaments, the, the, the leader shoots 16, 17 under. Right. Right. And the, and the guys that, that, that finish, uh, and get cut for the two days, the, the, the DFL guy is probably what, like plus six, plus seven yeah, for two days, plus eight, maybe. Mm-hmm. So that's still, you know, that's what, 17 uh, and then eight, that's 25 strokes yeah. for, for two rounds. And, and, you know, if you, if you figure up, that's another, you know, another uh, four or five shots. So it ends up being maybe 30 shots from top to bottom. If everybody made the cut 30, right. 35 shots, right. He beat me by 64. <laughs> like, and I'm a pretty decent player. And like, <laughs> <laughs> made you rethink just, your career decision huh <laughs> oh you better believe it I, you just you there's no chance you have no chance and and the other one that i always crack up about is i heard uh, kevin kisner on the foreplay pod uh talk about uh one of the guys uh they were talking about their their game over in australia yeah and how he went out and he shot 75 and he was very proud of the 75 he had shot i think it was at barn Boogle. and he said Hey, Kiz, do you think if I was able to two, get automatic two putts or automatic one putts on every green, once my ball is on the green, it's an automatic one putt, do you think I could play on tour? And there was this long pause. And then Kisner, he was on the phone. Kisner just goes, no. <laughs> and he's like, really? You don't think so? He goes, no. He's like, why? He's like, well, first off, you're playing a golf course that's over a thousand yards shorter than we play. And he's like, so that 75 becomes like an 82. Yeah. And and he's like, okay. And he said, and then how many of those were one putts already for you? How many of, you know, in that 75, how many greens did right. you already one putt? Five? Yeah. Six? He's like, well, yeah. He goes, okay, so you're talking like maybe 11 or 12 strokes from that? All right, so 82, 12, that's a 70. That ain't making, it, making you money on the PGA Tour, bud. Sorry. No. He goes, you'll struggle to make the cut. That's crazy to think about, the, how good those guys are. Did you see that? I saw this, and it was not too long ago, but I don't know when the qualifier was, but some guy in the course of his round shot 59 in the, in the, in the qualifier, and he lost in the playoff. Yeah. Right. I mean, this guy, and this is just a guy trying to make it on a tour. Exactly. Then, like, I love following uh, Monday qualifying info because he he has he has some of the coolest stats on these guys. Like, people do not understand the depth of good players. Like, even at the place that I play regularly, like there are players at our facility that are plus three and plus four handicaps. Yeah, that are like good players that played in college that are, I mean, I'm, I'm a five handicap. They're, they're, they're nine strokes. They have to, they have to add nine strokes to their <laughs> score to compete with me. Right. That's great. And they're just a club player. They're right. nowhere close to PGA tour level. No. 
and it's just it's insane when you think about how good you have to be to be able to compete as a professional golfer, let alone compete as a European tour player or a PGA tour player that is on the top two tours in the, in the world. Yeah. It's just absolutely insane. Right. Well, what is one of, what is, what is, you may not have the stats in front of you, but if you can recall, what is some of the more fascinating stats that people would sort of shake their head at in terms of, uh, I got this fancy little device here. <laughs> there you go. But you and know, I've got I, some stuff pulled up. I like, we got to it. So I like a good one. I like, I'd love to, I love the, the, the idea that people think that, well, I'm a hundred yards from the hole. I should make birdie here. And then you look at the actual stats of what, like a tour player's proximity yeah, to the hole. So Some of that stuff just that, fascinates Those me. are the ones that I was going to pull up. Yeah. So that's perfect. I'm glad you, you just teed that up and we didn't do that on purpose. No. Okay. So, so we mentioned that 150 yards, right? Yep. So yep. how far from the fairway do you think the average distance to the to the hole is when the green is hit? Because the other thing, this is one of the things people don't realize, is that when you see proximity and it's just average proximity and there is no you know, qualifier, that is the distance the ball is from the hole, from the pl- from the pin, regardless of whether it's on the green or not. Right. Right? right. So people don't realize that second part. They think, oh, his average proximity is seven foot, seven feet, six inches from 100 yards. I should hit it seven feet, six inches. Well, it's like, well, but if the, if the pin is two yards off the left, he's not on the green. Right. He's short-sighted. Right. And, and so, you know, that's, that's one of the things that people don't realize is that average proximity number is a little deceiving – because it it also counts balls that are not on the green, so it's not the average distance to the hole when you hit the green. It's the average distance to the hole. Period. Is that do they make a distinction in those stats on the green versus uh, just if you in have general? access to the to the full database, you can get that information. Right. What what's the average distance when the green is hit versus when the green is not hit? Right. Right. So from a, from 150 yards. What do you think the average distance to the to the hole is when the green is hit for a PGA Tour player? I, I've seen I, it's it's somewhere over around 25, 30 yards or thirty feet, twenty five or thirty feet. Yeah, it's it's when the green is hit, it's twenty feet eleven inches. Okay, I was when, a little when high. the when it when the average proximity is is just proximity, it's twenty five feet. You're exactly right. right. Yes. Yeah. So. So when it when the green is hit, it's a little closer, right? Right, which makes sense. Makes sense. Yep. When the green is missed, it's thirty eight feet. Okay. Huh, right. So when if you take only the balls that miss the green, the average distance is thirty eight feet. Right. So that tells you that they're trying to play, generally speaking, to the fat side uh-huh. rather than the short side. Right. And then from one hundred fifty yards, what do you think the percentage of those balls are hitting the green. What's what's the percent of oh. greens hit? You you want to think that that this is professional, right? Professional yeah. players. I mean, I would. Is it fifty percent? Yeah. Yeah. Seventy five percent. Okay. Seventy six. I, I, I was. I wouldn't. So it's pretty I, high. I, yeah. But what's crazy is that from the rough, the average green hit is forty six percent from one hundred fifty. So it goes down almost thirty percent. Yeah. So if you that, that goes to show you hitting the fairway makes a world of difference. 
it does. Yep. And that's why those guys still talk about, I need to be able to hit the fairway most of the time. Right. What they, what they are willing to sacrifice is one fairway around for about 10 or 12 yards of distance. So if, if, if they can pick up 10 or 12 yards, excuse me, of distance, right. they'll sacrifice one fairway around, but they're not going to sacrifice two fairways around for it. Right. And then, um, What's interesting is that the average proximity when the green is hit uh, from the rough is 28 feet. So it's it's a little worse. It's eight feet worse, but it's not like off the planet worse, right? Right. right. So how about this? From a fairway bunker, 45.2% hit the green. Average proximity when the green is hit, 27 feet. Not that much different. Right. But when the green is missed, it's 101 feet. So there's a lot more variability coming out of the bunker. Yeah, a lot of hit and dips, fat shots. And it's shots. similar with the yeah. rough. There's more variability coming right. out of the rough than there is from the fairway, from that a good shot and a bad shot. That what you just said doesn't really support, in theory, the idea that the guy would rather be in the bunker in the fairway or the rough. I mean, it's supposed yeah. to be basically the same. In right. Ter- in terms so he, of here, here's the and that and that's and that's the thing is that on certain holes you the proper play is to basically kind of hope that you don't end up in a bunker. Yeah. But you're playing to that side because there's a penalty hazard over on the other side. So you're veering away from it and you're hoping that the outcome of this shot is not in the bunker. Right. But if it is, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to do the best I can out of that shot. Right. Right. And, and that's one of the been one of the big things for me is understanding some of these numbers is just in my own play is realizing like you, one, one of the things that one of my favorite guys, Scott Fawcett, talks about is is that you don't have a sniper rifle, you have a shotgun. And that when you're when you're if you stand on on a flat level range tee and you hit 107 irons in a row. That is that is as uniform an environment as you can possibly get. No right. pressure, practice, flat level lie. You give yourself a good lie every time. Hit 107 irons and note where they go. They don't all go to the same spot. Mm-hmm. There's a huge cone of shots out there that when you hit the shot, you were still trying to hit it at that post. Right. But it didn't go there. It went somewhere else. Yeah. And it, so it ends up, what you're really moving around the golf course is that shotgun pattern. And so what you're hoping for when you have a penalty hazard on the right side of the fairway and bunkers on the left is you move the shot pattern over towards the bunkers and you hope that the outcome is a little bit towards the right in the fairway and not straight right at the bunker. Right. And and it's it's just kind of the way it works out and it so then it takes a lot of the stress out of like oh i didn't hit that like i was trying to hit it in the fairway well then if you were trying to hit it in the fairway then you might be being a little too aggressive and too many balls are going to end up in the water cuz there's still going to be shots that go to the right yep you know so here's one that i always think is interesting cuz people go oh well you know 150 well what about from 16 yards from the hole <laughs> And you think 16, okay, so that's like the middle of what they consider to be the short game uh, statistics. So any shot within 30 yards of the green is considered a short game shot. Right. So 16 is right in the middle. From the fairway, this is interesting, 
How many, what, what do you think the percentage on tour from 16 yards to hit the green is? 90%. It's 90, 93.8. Yeah. So there's still 6%, 6 of them. 6 of them. They hit 100 the shots from 16 yards. There's six of them that don't make the green. That's, that's I mean, it, I knew it was high. I just, it's crazy to think that sure. there's still a, a percentage there's of. There's still some. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and then and then the average proximity when the green is hit, what do you think that number is from 16 yards? So when they hit the green. 12 feet. Six feet, four inches. God. So they're pretty good. Yeah. They're pretty good. Yep. But what's interesting is I, I still curse Tom Watson for putting in Golf Digest back in the day that when he practices his chipping, he's always trying to hit it within three feet, and I should too. Yeah. Because I was talking to I was talking the, to, I was talking so to Virgil. I got a couple yeah. other statistics oh, go ahead, go ahead. on this. Yep. So like so twenty seven percent of the shots finish inside three feet. About 50% finish inside five feet and 70% finish inside eight feet. So eight feet is really what those guys under tournament play are trying to hit it within right. when they have a 16-yard shot. And so for me, as a five handicap that's like way worse than them, yeah. like at best I should be thinking about eight feet. And so then that's the other thing that's changed for me, BJ, is knowing some of these numbers. When I hit one to five feet, yeah. I go, eh, that's better than a PGA Tour player would do from there on average. Right. I mean, and, get, you, and you get a little bit of confidence out of it right. instead of instead of being like, oh, God, I'm five feet. Oh, Should have hit it closer. Yep. Like, no, you shouldn't have. <laughs> and in fact, like, even at, even at being a decent golfer, I should be thinking, like, just get it on the green. Yeah, the, in the, theory, yeah. You know, and that's that's the thing that you see with these numbers is that you see that, that you know, they're, they're good. There's no question about it. But they're, in, in a lot of cases, not as good as you think they are. Because even there – like the average distance being like seven feet, 11 inches, that's right about where, uh, where the 50-50 is for putting. So even still, for, if, if they get it within eight feet, they're, they're 50, at eight feet, you know, seven feet, 11 inches, it's a 50% make rate for putting. Right. So half of those are going to be made and they're going to get up and down for par and half of them they're going to make bogey. Yep. Like, so we don't have anything to complain about if we make somehow make par out of that. Like, you should walk away like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> right. You know, instead of being like, oh, my God, I can't believe I botched that. Or or worse yet, calling the superintendent over to tell him why the bunker isn't prepared properly. <laughs> right? Right. That's the thing that get that. And that gets back to kind of what I was talking about was like, so just going back to that 16 yarder, like out of the bunker the average distance when the green is heat hit from the bunker from a green side bunker from 16 yards is, is eight feet, seven inches. Um, 87.6% of them of the green is hit. Um, 15% finish inside of three feet, 31%, 32% finish inside five feet and 52% are inside eight feet. So 
for them from 16 yards, they're trying to get it within an eight foot circle so that they have a 50, 50 chance of getting up and down. And you have club members going to their superintendent going, Oh, I can't believe how these bunkers are prepared. This is unacceptable. (laughs) And when you ask them what their up and down percentage, they think it ought to be, they think they ought to be getting up and down 60% 70% of the time when the number one bunker player on tour is like 54% out of a greenside bunker. Yeah. And that's a number one player on tour. Yeah. And these guys will, you know, tell their superintendents how they think we need to redo the bunkers because they're not good enough. It's like, bud, it ain't, it ain't the bunkers. Right. It's you. You're not good. And they just don't want to hear a that. A lesson they is just, more appropriate. Yeah. And Brandon, they just don't want to hear that. That's not, I mean, that's the, 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 these guys, even gals, but I mean, the, the club <laughs> members, they just, they, no, they don't want to they, hear. They don't and, understand. And, and honestly, what I would love to see is I would I would love to see a club take take all of that and figure out what it would cost for a bunker renovation. Yeah, and then put it put put it into a pool of money to pay the employees more, so they maybe can do a little bit more work on on the bunkers. You know, keep them in better shape, and then take the rest of it and give it to the golf pro and say, "You guys have all get free bunker lessons, right? As many as you want." Yep. Because we're going to get you better out of the bunker. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the bunkers the are fine. Yeah. I mean, the stats are there for a reason. And the, to compare and using the professionals to do that, it's that gives us guys, even you and I, who, I, you know, I played college golf. We both had, we both are better than most golfers. You know, yep. um, it gives us perspective on where our oh, game yeah. is rel- relative to what they're doing. And they're su- <laughs> super good. I mean, just that's exactly it. Is it, it? You don't have to measure yourself by the same measuring stick, but no. you can re- recognize that if that's the measuring stick that they're using to measure them, and you're just some factor worse than that, that you start to realize like what is a reasonable outcome from this shot right. for you, yeah. right? And so for me, like when I'm in the trees from 100 to 200 yards, we talked about that before, 3.8. Yep. So for me, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to advance the ball as far, you know, as far down the hole as I can so that my next shot is closer to the hole as much as possible. That's all I'm trying to do. And like in one of my, my, the examples I use is I, I go on a buddy's trip every fall in Kentucky with some guys that I grew up with that live in Cincinnati and we meet halfway in Cumberland and one of the guys, his mom has a condo. And so we stay in the condo and, and, you know, reminisce and remember, uh, you know, we grew up together. So we tell stories and lies and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) And, um, and then we go out and play this little, you know, like retirement community golf course that's there. And it's like, I don't know, it's like, 5,900 yards long. It's not a real long golf course. It's relatively easy. There's not a lot of real challenging shots. And um, each year that we've done that, I've, I've always shot around even par. Um, and this, not this last year, but the year before, we were coming down the stretch and I was like one over par. Um, and there's one really kind of tight hole. There's trees left and right. It's dead either way. Yep. Uh, and I hit hit a shot off the tee. And I pulled it just slightly and I end up, I'm in the trees and my buddy was like, dude, you're one over. Are you going to try to hook it out of here and try to get it up there on the green? And I was like, no. (laughs) He's like, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm just going to punch a five iron down into that lower fairway and go try to get it up and down. 
And he's like, oh, okay. I said, and if, if it rolls up and gets closer to the green, it'll just make it easier for me to get up and down. Right. And so that's all I did is I punched it. Well, it happened. I punched it. It, it, it went right out under the trees, hit, hit the fairway and rolled up and it ended up kind of like almost on the collar. It was a relatively straightforward chip, but I was in the fairway, chipped it up to like a foot, tapped in for par and went to the next hole. And then I ended up, uh, that that's 16. So I ended up birdieing 17, which right. was a par three. And then I eagled 18, which was a par five. And these guys are like high-fiving me at the end of the round. Like, oh, my God, I've never seen anybody play as good as you've played. Like, oh, my God, like, how are you not a pro? And, and I'm just like, you guys have no idea how good those guys are. Because yeah. this, like, this was just regular. Like, I played average today. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it just, it just is comical. But it's just one of those things, like, out of the trees. It changes your expectation about what you're trying. You're no longer trying to hit these hero shots that you see on TV, but those hero shots that you see on TV, if that, if you, if you gave that guy a bag of balls and they hit those shots, one or two of them would be like that. And the rest of them would be pretty reasonable outcomes. Right. And a couple of them would end up dinging a tree and going farther into the woods. Yeah. And, and you just have to understand like, out, you know, every, every time you play a shot, there's that whole possibility of outcomes that's going to come out and you just have to kind of accept, okay, I've done everything I could to make a proper decision here. Yep. And like Scott Fawcett that I mentioned, um, I use the, like one of, one of his rule of thumbs is, is 80% or 90%, uh -huh. the 90% rule. You, if, if, if you're in a trouble situation, you need to select a shot that you can pull off 90% of the time, nine yeah. out of 10 times. A good so rule. you shouldn't be choosing a shot that you can only pull off twice out of 10. Right. Because then you're just inviting more trouble. And if the goal is to try to shoot as low a score as possible, then that makes sense. Right. Yep. So. I mean, it's crazy. I don't know what all the data is, but just we grew up in an era where we watched, you know, arguably the greatest golfer of all time and the stats that put him in that category of winning one out of every four tournaments he ever played in. I mean, just was amazing oh. to me that Tiger and how yeah. much he beat the field up in every statistical category under the sun. He was not only driving the ball well, and he may not have been the best driver, but, you know, he – his short game was incredible. His putting was incredible. And he just – the stats – and I don't have them in front of me. I'm not that much of a statistician, it's easy for me to say. But, um, you know, you just go back and have somebody look at it and say he would he would dominate so so, so much that it was mind-blowing that, that the other guys were ever even going to catch up to him. Oh, the, the, the one that I still think is absolutely astounding – is his cuts made streak. It's crazy. Because, like, people don't, like, we got used to that. Yep. But the dude is still a cut maker, even yeah. now. Right. Like, he doesn't miss cuts that often. Yeah, he misses them more than he did when he was in his heyday. Yeah. But when he was in his heyday, he went several years without missing one. <laughs> no. What, the, what, and, how many weeks and it's at not number uncommon one? for Rory or Justin to miss one or two a, a year, easy, yeah. Yeah. three or four even. Yep. I, I, I heard that somebody was saying how, you know, Rory and Ty and all these new guys are, 
you know, how they compare to Tiger. And, and the analogy was is you would have to take, like, the best of Rory, the best game of Jordan Spieth and maybe one other, and bottle them up and mix them up together to equal how good he pl- Tiger was oh. at his oh, yeah. time. That's, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's to put it in that kind of perspective. Yeah, oh, that's <laughs> no question. I mean, when you ask those guys and you give them a list, like that's one of the ones that like I, I loved when they they did the thing with Jack's records. Yeah. And they handed them to like Rory and they had him on camera when they handed it and said, This is a list of Jack's records. And he's looking at him and and he knows Jack's records kind of up in his head. Right. But seeing them on paper and you just see him go, <laughs> like, and you're like, which one are you looking at? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, the dude came in second in majors, what, like 22 times? Yeah. So he could have had like 30 something majors, not 18. Right. Like, Mind blowing. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and you, and you, like people just don't get that. They don't, that those kinds of things are just so far out of the perspective yep. that they just, it's hard to put them into context. Yeah. Well, it's been a lot of fun doing this. I know we've got other things we got to do. Where do you follow? I know you mentioned uh, in the talk, but there's some places where you can, uh, guys can go, gals, to look at all this data, follow on Twitter, give that information out, and, and if you've got any other spots, give that Yeah, out. The, the, the two guys that I would, I would follow religiously on Twitter would be Scott Fawcett, which mm-hmm. is, uh, he's at, I think he's at Scott Fawcett. Let me just double check that. Sure. Um, he... Yeah, at Scott Fawcett, S-C-O-T-T-F-A-W-C-E-T-T. Okay. Um, And then uh, at Lou Stagner, and Lou is uh, another guy that is – he does statistics kind of part-time. Right. But he has been – and he is uh, at Lou, L-O-U – Stagner, S-A-S-T-A-G-N-E-R, S-T-A-G-N-E-R. Cool. And he, uh, he's a golf data guy, uh, works with Scott, uh, but is really able to manipulate the, the shot link database uh-huh. and, and create some really cool graphics, which were some of the things that we talked about that Lou had created, which right. was kind of cool. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> I've gotten to chat with him as well. And, and you just get a good perspective. Mark Brody is another one that I would follow. Um, and then uh, for for me, at UT Turf Path is my Twitter handle. Yep. And at UT Turf Grass is our turf program's Twitter handle. So feel free to follow along and ask questions there. Um, and, and then, you know, as far as other stuff, like um, Scott has a, a system called Decade that kind of teaches you how to use this stuff to play better golf. So Mm -hmm. if that's of interest, that's, that's something to look up as decade golf. Um, and then, uh, the book that Mark Brody wrote called, uh, every, every stroke counts, Mm -hmm. uh, is, is a really important one for understanding the whole concept of strokes gained. And then there's another one that's a little more obscure written by two golf pros up in, uh, Northern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania area, um, called uh, lowest score wins yep. and they go through similar concepts but they have they have some like real like average joe kinds of numbers from some of the work that they've done looking at like uh you know anywhere from a five to a 20 handicapper where should they 
you know, where should they effectively aim on the green to get the lowest score? And what you find out is that if you're, if you're much worse than a five handicap, you should be playing to the center of the green every single time, regardless of where the hole is. I think it just kind of helps people put it into perspective of, you know, because that's what tour pros are doing too. They might be able to edge it a little bit closer, but that's what they're essentially doing. For sure. For sure. And 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 Scott's uh, decade golf, he came up with his kind of strategy stuff based on rebuilding, as, as you had mentioned, Tiger. He basically went through the ShotLink database and rebuilt uh, and figured out every single shot that Tiger hit into a green during that stretch where he was just unbelievable and figured out, like, what were the big things. And, like, he starts people off with the, the Tiger 5, which is uh, no three putts, um, no botched easy up and downs. Right. Um, and then I, I struggle on the other three, but they have to do with uh, no double bogeys. Um, and then there's a couple that are like uh, hit so many greens, or but like most of it is just really basic stuff. But if you can do those five things, it's like really hard to shoot a bad score. Right. And, and it just kind of really helps, you know, kind of, uh, understand what, uh, you know, what you're trying to do. Well, I think we covered a lot of cool things. Uh, it's been a lot of time. This was fun to do. I I think this is going to be something that people are going to really enjoy listening to. We talked a lot of cool stuff and I, I appreciate you jumping on here and, and doing that with me. I know your time is valuable and, uh, it's always fun to catch up with you and I'm glad we got Absolutely. to do this. So uh, thanks, BJ. I appreciate it. You got it. Well, uh, I'll see you uh, soon. So I'm be up in uh, up in Knoxville in August. I think I'm coming back. So we'll be all we'll right. That again. sounds great. Looking forward to it. All right, Doc. Well, have a good uh, have a good rest of the day and uh, stay safe out there. And I appreciate all the things you're doing. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, sounds good. Thanks. All right, appreciate it. Hey guys, uh, just wanted to thank Dr. Brandon Horvath, MUT Knoxville, for jumping on here. We had a great conversation. Hope you enjoyed that podcast. We uh, talked a lot of things. We covered a lot of topics, and, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So just wanted to thank him again, sign off here before we end the podcast episode. So appreciate uh, him. Appreciate the sponsors uh, uh, over at uh, G- uh, Grounds Care Unlimited for uh, helping me out, putting this stuff together. Uh, they're really great. Uh, Matthew is doing a great job doing some cool services over there. Go check out his stuff at Grounds Care Unlimited. And uh, until next time, guys, I appreciate you checking out the uh, episode. Be sure to rate, share, and subscribe. I'm your host, BJ Parker, and until next time, I will talk to you soon.